Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. There's no reason in the 21st century that people should be going hungry. But people are going hungry. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, in 2019, nearly 700 million people across the world were facing hunger and poor nutrition. That's almost one in 10 people. With the onset of the global pandemic, some experts estimate that 100 million more people might be added to that number. It's not a time to give up against the global goals. It's, it's a time to redouble our effort. As part of our setback series, we're examining world hunger, both to get a sense of the magnitude of the challenge we face and because of the new sense of opportunity as we've come together to battle this pandemic. What we really need now is a radical reset at this moment, the commitment globally and nationally to reverse the trend. Abby Maxman is president and CEO of Oxfam America. There is enough food for all of us, and when we work together, global hunger is solvable. One thing I'd love to understand better is the impact that the pandemic has had on, on global hunger. I've seen estimates from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization that COVID-19 might have added something between 80 and 130 million people to the total number of undernourished in the world. Are those accurate numbers? And what? how much did it increase from the baseline before the pandemic? Well, the numbers that you were uh, already quoting are ones we are seeing consistent in terms of the rise of people who are living in hunger and certainly the number of people facing uh, on the verge of um, the word that we don't use lightly, (laughs) famine. But there's a confluence of factors, COVID, climate, conflict. 
inequality and the broken food systems that have people have been experiencing and we've seen for for years that has now been clearly unveiled for the world to see. Yeah. I mean, talk about the actual mechanism uh, around the pandemic. Um, We had Paul Farmer on recently, and he pointed out that many countries in Africa have done much better with the pandemic for a variety of reasons and probably a variety of reasons we don't understand. Um, But it's a cruel irony that they get these indirect effects, even if people aren't succumbing to the virus or affected by the virus as much. So how is the virus making people, particularly in Africa, which I think includes something like six or seven of the countries most afflicted by by hunger, how is it making things worse there? About two-thirds of the population across Africa are smallholder farmers. And what COVID has done to local economies, to food systems, and also the issues of conflict going on in the places that have the highest proportion of hunger, um, there's been this confluence of factors. So the smallholder farmers uh, are really faced with very few choices in terms of how to produce and move their food through a supply chain, if you will. And uh, we've spoken to a number of people, of course, the communities we work with. And there's a woman named Kadidia Diallo, who's a female milk producer in Burkina Faso, who told us she can't give her children something to eat in the morning uh, because they're totally dependent on the sale of milk. And with the closure of the market, they can't sell the milk anymore. And if we can't sell milk, we don't eat. Uh, and those are kind of the the anecdotes that are widespread at the moment. You know, that notion of what we call the hunger virus. And as Oxfam, we produced a, por- a report last year uh, that COVID is unveiling or unleashing a number of uh, shadow pandemics, if you will, hunger among, among them. I wanted to talk a little more about that where question. I'm looking at that report right now, and I was just going to read the top 10 countries for millions of people facing crisis level hunger. Now, this report was done in July 2020, uh, so it may have been updated since then. But at the time, the worst afflicted countries were Yemen, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Democratic and Republic being dubious parts of the name, Afghanistan, Venezuela, um, West Africa, Sahel, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Syria, Sudan, and Haiti. Is that still pretty much the list? I think there's that's pretty much consistent today because you can see the overlay with those those factors that I talked about, conflict being amongst them. But then the climatic changes and implications, and that becomes this toxic situation, if you will, uh, around people's ability to access and how markets work and how those at the bottom are really left behind. Another impact of the crisis is that aid organizations like Oxfam, which is the preeminent one in many parts of the world, have had to cut back themselves and have found it harder to operate in some of those countries. I know Oxfam uh, at the in the early days of the pandemic had to close a number of offices, lay off a number of people. In the UK, it's uh, everyone knows Oxfam for the shops it has everywhere, which are like secondhand shops that um, help to fund Oxfam's relief, relief activities, and a lot of those, of course, were not were not open. Um, how has that affected the ability to provide relief in those places? 
Uh, well, it's certainly challenging. I mean, as we all know, resources are key. You know, the demand is greater than ever. And then, you know, there's always a challenge when you're in nonprofits. But certainly what you just described, when the shops closed, uh, that has a big impact on our, on our ongoing operations when there's a demand that is increasing. But I also, Jacob, would like to talk about the meta or more macro level too. Um, I love talking about Oxfam. And when you look back at what was happening last year when we wrote the hunger virus report, the 10 uh, bit largest food and beverage companies in the world uh, had um, $18 billion of profit that was, was distributed across shareholders. And those are ones who rely on global value chains at a time when the global humanitarian response needs was barely funded, you know, at, at under 20% at the time of 8 billion of a total need or 7.8 billion. Let me question a little further whether or how those two things are related. Because when I look at the countries on your top 10 list, the majority of them have been suffering from civil war or civil conflict or at least political breakdown. And much of the challenge is getting help to people, not the willingness of the outside world to provide help to a place like Yemen or Syria. So, you know, is the question of how much money food companies are making really germane to the problem? There's no reason in the 21st century that uh, people should be going hungry. And there's a question of human action and inaction and policy choices that are made. The germane relationship of looking at the entire ecosystem, where we're looking at multilateralism and choices that are made to be able to increase resourcing at a time to prevent the loss of life and livelihoods, while the corporations can be uh, profiting significantly, you know, there, there's a whole range of interconnections between what's happening and uh, un unequal uh, tax systems and where the resources are flowing at a time when they could be flowing in other directions. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the UN sustainability goals, one of, the, one of the core ones was eradicating hunger and famine worldwide by 2030. The first part of the millennium, we saw tremendous progress against extreme poverty, including hunger. And a question running through this miniseries we're doing on the, on the pandemic setback is how temporary is the setback or is this setback temporary? That is, are we going to lose a year or a couple of years and then get back on the positive trajectory we were on? Or is this something more dire that's going to reverse the progress we were seeing? What do you think? Well, I think it, it will depend on the ability of um, wealthy governments to make real commitments, to look at the debt some of the low-income countries are forced to carry and so that the right investments can be made at country level for um, investing in food security, in food systems, in livelihoods, in public health. Uh, we've seen a whole disproportionate level of you know, debt repayment that could have uh, covered entire social protection mechanisms in certain countries. What we really need now is a radical reset at this moment, the commitment globally and nationally to reverse the trend. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep tight stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about solutions a little bit. Um, I'm interested in what some of the most effective strategies are for Oxfam right now. Um, solvable listeners have heard a couple of times from big advocates of cash transfers who argue that we've figured out what works in aid, basically. It's giving people money. It's not giving people food or other, or trying to help necessarily more specific ways. That's not necessarily Oxfam's approach. I wonder what you think is working. Well, that is a component of it. It's, there's not a single approach. I think it's a suite of approaches together. So we're very supportive of cash transfers and local solutions and safety nets, be it food. There are, are appropriate times when food delivery might be the right thing. Um, promoting agriculture development and smallholder farmers, giving farmers tools and seeds that are appropriate and adaptive uh, to climatic conditions. And we also work and support what we call female food heroes, uh, women who can be productive both in their communities but raise their voices to help influence policy and production practices and big social protection programs that we've seen very successful in places like Ethiopia where 
there have been, as we know, chronic food insecurity back from the 1984 famine to um, early 2000s, where putting in place a productive safety net program that works with multilateral governments, the local national government and NGOs, including Oxfam, protects the lives and livelihoods of 8 million chronically food insecure people in the country. So there's a combination of events and, or approaches that can really make a difference. I've seen you say that hunger is about power. And, you know, I think a lot of younger people feel that uh, aid organizations and aid institutions uh, in many ways reflect it, uh, even as they're trying to address it, that you have rich countries um, who, you know, often go in with a uh, colonial mentality or a savior mentality um, and are um, treating the recipients uh, in a patronizing way. And they would like to see much more of a power balance in the way aid is distributed and the way these organizations work. How has Oxfam um, been affected by that kind of conversation? Well, it's an important one, and it's one where Oxfam has been uh, committed to real change for many years. Uh, back in 2015, there was a World Humanitarian Summit where uh, we were championing and we continue to uh, with others what we like to call local humanitarian leadership. We know who are the frontline responders. Uh, invariably, it is those living locally in communities. Um, and so we take a partner-led approach. Um, just in over the course of COVID, we've worked with over 700 partners globally across almost 70 countries in terms of supporting locally led response. So we look at the local leadership and how do we support local organizations to access the resources they need and be able to deliver, but ensure global connections to make sure that lessons and resourcing can uh, help support um, the local local action. And that that's relevant here in the United States, too. We work the Deep South and Puerto Rico uh, in Appalachia as well to support um, activities as well as we do around the world. Abby, I wonder why hunger is your solvable at a, at a personal level. What led you to devote your life to this huge challenge, and but this issue in particular? Well, this issue, um, you know, I know my own personal, I would say, reckoning or, or awareness was the 1984 Ethiopian famine. I was uh, just about to finish high school at the time, but the images that came through and the global attention around this really struck me. Um, and thinking, how can this be? Um, and, you know, that, that was a time where I think it was galvanizing for the world to understand what was really happening and the, the full gravity of that. I went on to work in Southern Africa um, and then in the Horn of Africa, including living and working in Ethiopia for eight years, but spending decades working working there. And as we look at what uh, the issues of inequality and poverty and the issue of hunger, I've seen when there's political will, collective action, local empowerment, uh, women's voices at the table, that real change can happen. Yeah. I mean, that whole history you point to of the 
international crisis and response, which you you first saw around the Ethiopian famine, but even before that goes to the back to the Bangladesh famine and the Nigerian civil war in Biafra in the late sixties, um, is a is a very frustrating model because the the pattern going back to those crises is the world gets notices, the world is horrified, the world provides a lot of aid. And then it doesn't really, the aid doesn't really, a lot of it doesn't really get there, either because it's obstructed by politics and conflict, or because of inefficiencies in distribution. Um, or, you know, there's some aid that gets through, but it doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally alter the situation. What have we learned since you started paying attention to the issue 35 years ago? Have we gotten better at providing aid and relief and in crisis and in crisis prevention? Well, I truly believe so. <laughs> um, and, and as I look at the um, genesis or founding of Oxfam in the United States was during the Bangladesh and Cambodia civil wars and uh, the the hunger issues there. And so part of it is not just um, moving food, but understanding the co- complexity of the issues, influencing you know, geopolitical and, and bilateral engagement by countries like the United States, which can have a big impact on what happens um, in other places. So we've seen lots of learnings, I think, of how do you we mobilize action uh, in places like Ethiopia, where there have been some real learnings over decades uh, of looking at chronic vulnerability and food insecurity, and how do you respond with a, a joint government U.S., World Bank, multilateral and NGO response to look at social protection, and not just through food, but through cash and looking at hungry periods, but then overlaying it with the issues of understanding the impact of climate change. So those are big climate uh, policy-related commitments that can need to be considered as well. Um, with collective action and political will, you see when you can prevent and even reverse the tra- trajectory of some of these issues. What are the most important things that listeners can do to reduce the worsening of global hunger because of the pandemic? Well, thank you for bringing attention to this issue. I would say that uh, despite the setbacks we're seeing, it's not a time to give up against the global goals. It's, It's a time to redouble our effort. So what can people do? Donate to address hunger locally or globally. Either I know people have been really stepping up to support their local food banks and charities. That remains an important component of the effort, not the only thing. Um, supporting local farmers and food systems and people in the United States can make choices of uh, being much more conscious of knowing where their food comes from because the supply chain if you know getting cheap food in the United States often starts somewhere else and kind of end the extreme asymmetry between small-scale producers and big food com- companies and really encourage people to learn more and be an advocate on the issue of hunger with family and friends um, and get involved politically and reach out to their representatives to let them know they care about it. Is there anything you've read recently, either a book or an article or, or a film or a, or a TV show that has uh, brought home and would bring home for listeners the dimensions of the problem and the way you're talking about it? I'd say 
Roger Thoreau, uh, The Last Hunger Season, and he has a TED Talk and other things that helps unpack the question for people. Michael Pollan in Defense of Food that helps look at the bigger issues and the industrialization of food. Movies, uh, gosh, like, um, uh, was it The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind? It's a book and a movie that uh, looks at a water-related situation in Malawi during a food crisis uh, that also brings to life some of these issues. Those are some things to, that come to mind. Abby, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jacob. Good to be with you. Abby Maxman is the president and CEO of Oxfam America. To learn more about progress in the fight against global hunger and how the pandemic has affected it, as well as other global development goals, check out the links in our show notes. And, Solvable listeners, we have some exciting news to share. You might have heard him on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour as a guest contributor, or on a number of other podcasts inside and outside the world of public radio. Host Ronald Young Jr. is joining our team. I'm 37. I'd love to get married and have kids within the next three years by the time I'm 40. Tell me what the world looks like for them if we continued on the path that we're on. More from Ronald coming soon. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Catherine Girardeau is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Sasha Mathias and Sophie McKibben. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review it. It really helps us get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.